Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the first epistle of Peter. We'll discuss relationships between husbands and wives, even when one is a non-believer. And we will discuss how we are to be ready to discuss the hope we have for eternity with others, sometimes referred to as apologetics. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3, we'll begin our lesson. So why don't I open us up in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this group, and we thank you for your word. And we thank you for putting on our hearts today as we go through this, the areas that we need to focus on. We're going to be talking about husbands and wives and our relationships with our spouses a little bit today, as well as being prepared and being available to serve as a witness for you. And I just ask that you continue to help us mature in our faith so that we're able to do both of those things and do them well. I ask that you speak through me and speak through anyone else who speaks up and just guide our discussions. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in 1 Peter 3. And to set up where we're going to go today, let me just refresh your memory on what we talked about last time because it's sort of building on that. As we finished up 1 Peter chapter 2 last time, you'll recall we were all very convicted because Peter was talking about how we're to love and be submissive even to bad bosses, even to people who treat us unfairly, even people who we may be working for who don't treat us right. We're still to love them and be submissive to them, of course, unless they're telling us to do something that's counter to Scripture. And then he went on to even talk about how Jesus had no sin, and yet people were reviling him and saying terrible things about him, and he uttered no threats in response. And so that was an example of how we're to try to live. So Peter's now going to build on that as he talks about spousal relationships. And one other little thing I want to set up, in this time, in Peter's day at this time, Women in general didn't receive much respect. They just didn't. And there were females that were then becoming believers. They were becoming Christians, but they had an unbelieving husband. That was viewed actually as an act of disobedience or an act of defiance to their husband. So it was sort of a difficult time. Peter is going to address what should a wife that is now a believer What is she supposed to do in terms of her unbelieving husband? That's what he's going to be talking about. We're going to hear this word submission quite a bit in the first part of what we're going to study this morning. And that word, what it means is to voluntarily yield your rights or your will to another person. And it is truly an expression of love for the other person. It doesn't mean you're inferior, and we'll talk about that. So let's begin chapter 3, verse 1. You see, he says, in the same way, so he's talking about in the same way that he's been talking about submission in our business relationships where we ended last time. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, meaning they're unbelievers, even if they're unbelievers, they may be won or they may be saved, converted, without a word by the behavior of their wives. So what he's talking about here is he's saying submit to them and trust God that he's going to deal with them in the appropriate way. 
And this submission, this is God's plan for a biblical marriage. And I'm going to give you some more verses on that in just a minute. But a husband and wife, they're equal, but this is a role that he has given in the marriage relationship to be submissive. And he's saying, even if your husband is an unbeliever, he wants the wife to be submissive to the husband so that they can be one, not by her nagging him and saying, boy, I keep praying for you. I'm really disappointed. You're still not accepting Jesus Christ, you know, constantly nagging. No, it's without a word, but it's by their behavior of their wives. And he's saying, don't divorce an unbelieving husband. Let me give you a little bit more on this. Hold your place here and let's go over to 1 Corinthians 7. It's back over to the left. Corinthians is after Romans, which is after Acts, which is after the Gospels. 1 Corinthians 7. Let me start down here in verse 13. It says, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, same situation, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, this sanctified, this isn't saying that your unbelieving husband will be saved. That's justification, that his sins would be forgiven. Sanctified means set apart for God's purpose. So it isn't that your unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife is saved through your faith, but it does enable God to work through that situation. It does not mean redeemed or justified or salvation. It goes on, verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So in the case of a believer being married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever leaves, divorces them, then this is grounds, allows the believing spouse who was left to be released from that marriage is the way many people interpret that. And it says, but God has called us to peace. So it's saying, let them go. But if they want to stay, then you should allow them to stay. It says in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So if the unbelieving spouse will stay with you, you should stay with them. There's many, many instances of an unbelieving spouse coming to faith through the believing spouse. Let's go back over to 1 Peter. Let me pick up where I left off. So he's saying don't divorce an unbelieving husband, or this would apply to an unbelieving wife if the husband is a believer. But if they leave, let them go. And as I said, you're free to remarry. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, I'll just read it to you real quick. It says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to marry whoever she wishes, only in the Lord, meaning another believer. So that enables the living spouse to then remarry. Verse 2, I'm back over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. So he's saying that the unbeliever may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste, meaning your pure conduct, and their respectful behavior, meaning their behavior is one that's giving honor and respect to their husband. God can use the believing spouse as an instrument to save the unbelieving spouse. Verse 3, And let not your adornment be external only, 
braiding the hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and putting on dresses. So it's okay to do this. It says, just don't let that be the only thing. That shouldn't be the real focus. The real focus we're going to see should be on the heart. Verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. So meek, humble, quiet, respectful, not nagging, being under control. He goes on to say all of that is precious in the sight of God. Verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So Peter's saying he's not just making this up. It was this way in the Old Testament times. And he's going to talk about Abraham and Sarah who had saving faith and trusted God. Verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham. Sarah was married to Abraham, calling him Lord. So she was submitting to his authority. She was respecting him. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So trust in God and God can use the believing spouse to save the unbelieving spouse. Verse 7, now he's going to talk about husbands. And I think these following verses could apply to a husband with an unbelieving wife, and they also apply to a husband with a believing wife. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Let me unpack this a little bit. So husbands are also to submit to wives and be devoted to them. A husband is to place the interest of his wife ahead of his own as he serves her. Let me show you a few verses that help support what I'm saying here. Go over to Ephesians, which is over to the left, just after Galatians, which is after Corinthians. Go over to Ephesians 5. Let me show you a few verses over there on our role as husbands. Let me just first show you verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, so that's both of us. Husbands and wives are to be subject to one another. We are to submit to one another. So it's an equal thing. Even though verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. When you look down in verse 25, that's where I'll pick up. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle in any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So a husband is to be devoted and even be willing to give his life for his wife. While there are different roles of husbands and wives, they are actually to be subject to each other. They're equal. They have different roles. But this isn't a thing like the wife is just there to serve the husband and the husband can domineer over the wife. No, it's a two-way street. You'll get that submission from your wife if you're truly loving your wife as Christ loved the church. We each have different roles. Okay, so go back over to 1 Peter. So he's saying in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, You husbands likewise love your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. So this isn't talking about she's inferior. 
or she's spiritually inferior or intellectually or emotionally weaker. That's not what this is talking about, where it talks about as a weaker vessel. Typically, females are weaker physically. It's not always the case, but generally that's the case. And husbands are to provide protection for them and to take care of them. That's what this is talking about. Larry, on this one, the, one of the things I've noticed is that showing honor, and that's sort of the opposite of the weaker. So in public places, and public spaces, you never walked with your wife. Your wife was behind you. You never, to show honor was like insane. It was like such a flipping the script. So to honor your wife in a public setting because she is the weaker vessel was, no, you don't honor anything because it's the weaker vessel. You put it down. And so he's saying because she's one in Christ with you, because she's a fellow heir, you need to purposely honor her in public so that the world would see the uniqueness of the faith. And remember the days when you used to open the door for your wife and like even take her to her side of the car right. and open the door and now that's offensive. in. And I think that's what you're talking about. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And what's really interesting is in this verse, there's also a threat to us as husbands. Look at this threat. It says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is saying if husbands don't treat wives with compassion and respect and honor and love and cherish them and be devoted to them, our prayers are going to be interrupted. We're going to have a problem with our prayers. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, a husband's spiritual health depends on how he treats his wife. And I've had a number of people that I've counseled over the years, and they'll say something like, well, I just don't feel like God is answering my prayers. And I go, well, let's look into that a little bit. How are you treating your wife? Mm. And there you go. Boom. You know, he goes, well, what do you mean? And then I show him this verse. He goes, I didn't know that was in there. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's nowhere that has a similar verse to the wife. I've always found that fascinating. A wife's prayers aren't hindered, but ours are. There it is. If you're wondering why your prayers aren't being answered, you might reflect a little bit on how you're treating your wife. Okay, verse 8. To sum up, meaning he's going to sum up the discussion on business relationships, marital relationships, these other relationships he's been talking about. He says, to sum up, let all, and all means everyone, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So this is having a Christ-like attitude to really love one another and serve one another and place other people's interests ahead of our own. Over in John 13, 34, I've showed you this before. I'll go over there and just read it to you. Jesus gave us a test. He gave us a commandment. He said, first, I give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I've loved you. And remember, Jesus gave his life for us, paid our sin, paid the penalty for our sin, and he was sinless. He says that you may also love one another. And here's the test. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you've heard me say it before. If I were to go and talk to people who you know really well and say, tell me a little bit about Larry, would the first thing they say is, well, I know he's a Christian because he shows us tremendous love all the time. Unfortunately, I don't think you'd get that answer about me. And so we're all called to love one another. I think we all have work to do in this area. Okay, let's go back over to what we're reading. 
it says in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I was listening to Richard Ellis, good friend of mine, podcast. I can't remember if it was yesterday or today's podcast. I think it was yesterday's. And he was talking about how we tend to not bless other people as often as we should. And that was really convicting to me. I pray for other people, but how often do I actually pray for blessing? Or even when I'm praying with them, ask God to bless them and bless their lives. That talk was very convicting to me. So we're not to tear others down, but build them up. And let's all try to do more blessing of other people. That's what this is talking about. A blessing, when we receive it, it's receiving something that's not earned, that we don't deserve. So why don't we also try to bless other people? That's what this says, giving a blessing instead. So even when people are insulting us or saying bad things or offending us, to turn around and respond with a blessing back to them, boy, I think that's going to lock them up. They're not going to have a very good response for that. Verse 10, let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. This is out of Psalm 34, if you're wondering, verses 12 through 16. But it's the mouth that reflects our heart. We saw that in Matthew 12, 34. What comes out of our mouth is usually a reflection of what's on our heart. Verse 11, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So this is saying, go after it. Go after it with intensity and aggressiveness. Strive for harmony with others. Romans 12, 18, let me go over and show you that. I love this verse. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Yeah, there's some people that we're just not going to be able to get along with it's going to be that way. But as far as it depends on us, we're to live in peace with everyone. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. So God sees all, he knows all, he wants us to live rightly, and he wants to be able to respond to our prayers and not be hindered by our sin. He's always there watching and waiting and he wants to help us when we have prayers But when we sin, there's always going to be consequences. It says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So again, pursue it with intensity. That's what this is saying. This verse is also saying it is unusual for people to harm or lash out at other people who are generous and unselfish and kind and thoughtful. But he's going to quickly say, but it will happen, okay? There's still people, even when you're acting like that, that will still come after you. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. We should have this passion for goodness. It doesn't guarantee that we won't be mistreated by others. Remember, Jesus was kind to everyone and they killed him. These verses are saying when we suffer for doing right, we'll be blessed. We're to trust God. We're to face all our suffering with courage. And then those who are persecuting us, when they see how we still remain positive, even with them, they're going to want to know how in the world are you doing that? Let me just show you another verse real quick. I'm going to go over to Matthew 5. 
And I'll just read this to you I'm in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they did the same thing to the prophets. They did the same thing to Jesus. Just look up what we studied last time in chapter 2, verse 23. It says, this talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, and while being reviled, so while he was being oppressed by their abusive language, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Okay, that's how we are to live. That's what this is saying. Verse 15, and I think this is maybe the key verse in this chapter. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and sanctify means to be set apart. Set Jesus apart from all others so that we love and serve and obey and submit to him. We submit to his control, his instruction, his plan. We trust him and we worship him. That's what that means. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Listen to this. Always, that means always, at all times, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What's this talking about? This means we should always be ready to answer people's questions about why we believe what we believe and to share with them it's our expectation that our sins are forgiven and that we are going to be in heaven for eternity with Jesus. We should always be ready to speak the truth in love. And it says, yet with gentleness and reverence. So reverence means respect. We shouldn't do it in an overbearing way. We should do it with love and do it very gently. And if you aren't being asked from time to time to give an account, to share your testimony, I would ask each of us, if that's not happening very often, maybe it's because they don't see any difference in us that they even want to know what it is that's different about us. That should be very convicting to us because this is telling us always, I mean, at all times, be ready to give a defense. So how often are we being asked? I'll let you think about that. I think this is a key verse in this chapter. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So this is saying when we are abused verbally, we're not to fight back with insults back to them. Just endure it. And hopefully what will happen is then they're going to see that we are different and they're going to be put to shame by our just taking it and still loving on them we've got to just trust that Christ is going to make it right. Remember, the Bible says, leave vengeance to God, okay? Vengeance is for him to do and not for us to do. Look, I'm not saying this is easy. This is hard. This whole First Peter, the whole book is hard, but this is how we're being called to live. We should live differently than others. Verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong, meaning to lash back out against them. There's always going to be consequences to our sin. That's always going to happen. But this conscience sake, our conscience that we have, it holds us to a higher standard. It's divinely placed there. It will either accuse us or excuse us of our behavior. But one thing I want to say about that, 
a lot of times the Holy Spirit will speak to us through our conscience, particularly convict us when we sin and that type of thing. But it can also wrongly accuse us or wrongly excuse us. Somehow it can get hijacked by Satan or his folks when we start then doubting our faith. Our conscience will bring up some sin that was forgiven a long time ago, sin that we did. We know it's been forgiven, but then that sin comes back into our head and we start having doubts that, well, maybe it wasn't forgiven and Satan starts putting in our head, well, maybe we're not really a Christian. I mean, how would Jesus take somebody as screwed up as we are? That's when your conscience is playing games with you. The more time you spend in the Word, the more time you spend in prayer, your conscience is going to be there to really speak truth to you. But again, you need to be aware that sometimes you may be being told things that are incorrect. And that's what verse 16 is saying, keep a good conscience. I'm now in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. That means it doesn't need to be repeating. I know we've talked about this in the Catholic belief that every time they have communion, it's the body and blood of Christ all over again. Every time they have communion. It doesn't need repeating, this is saying. It's already been done. Christ died once. He died once and for all. Our sins are forgiven, which is the beauty. That's what gives us peace. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. And so it's done. It's a done deal. It says he died the just for the unjust. We didn't deserve it in order that he might bring us to God Now, this is also interesting. It says, if we believe, we got to believe, then he brings us to God. We don't need a priest. We now have the ability to go directly to God because of what Jesus has done for us. It says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation, is talking about Jesus, to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, let me try to unpack this. There's different views on the first part of this. This is essentially what happened during the three days after Jesus was crucified on the cross and then buried and arose three days later. He went down to actually declare his victory over death. But now where the different views come in is who are these spirits that were in prison? I'm just going to give you the two and let you all sort it out. Chris, I'd love to hear what you think if you want to add to it. Some say, well, this is talking about the disobedient people who were with Noah And the flood came, and so they're down waiting for their eternal punishment. And Jesus went down to declare victory to them and say, look, I've declared victory over death. There's others that relate this to Genesis 6. And let me take you over there and just give you some verses. I can see how you can make that connection as well. This is some fallen angels. If you'll go over to Genesis 6. Let me read that to you. I think it fits because where this is in Genesis is where it's talking about Noah. Genesis 6 verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, and this could be a reference to the fallen angels, one third of the angels that fell with Satan, 
saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Skip down eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what this is talking about, this is where Satan had some of his demons. They tried to corrupt God's plan for marriage, and they go out of their domain and had sex with humans. There's some that read that this way. So they married these humans, and they were trying to make a generation that was corrupt to really destroy what God had created. And let me show you some other verses that reference some of this, and then we'll come back and talk to it. Go now over, let me take you to 2 Peter 2.4. And that says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly thereafter, and it keeps going. So there's a reference possibly to the same thing. Let me take you over to Jude 6-7. Jude is the book right before Revelation. It says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, so possibly these angels who then went and had sex with humans, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. goes on, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in the undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, that's one more reference. Let me show you two more. Revelation 9, 1 through 2. And it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. That's a reference to Satan. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit. That's where these fallen angels were being held. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. So there's a reference to that. And then I'm going to take you finally over to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss, and a great chain is in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So this abyss is this holding place for at least possibly these demons who had had sex with humans. They've been cast there and are still there. That could be a reference to that. And as I said, this also could be a reference to just the people who were destroyed by the flood. 
There's others who say it could be a reference. It's all the people who were in the holding place waiting final judgment. In any event, Jesus went down and declared victory over Satan. He declared victory over those who have wanted to rebel against him. They've been thrown into this pit. Eventually, Satan is going to be locked up, as I said, for a thousand years during the millennium. That's just a temporary prison until finally he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And what's also interesting to me as I was studying this a little bit, I'll go over there, Luke 8, 31. It is clear that demons know about this, even the ones that aren't locked up presently. Luke 8, 31, I won't read this whole story to you, but basically this is a story about when Jesus came into this land, that there was this guy that was possessed with demons, and he'd been running around, and he looks over at Jesus, and he says, Jesus, Son of the Most High, I beg you, do not torment me, because he had been possessing this guy. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So there were a lot of demons in this guy. Verse 31, and it says, And they were entreating Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. So see, that's another reference. So even these demons knew that there were some of these other demons that had been sent to the bottomless pit waiting to be released for a short time after the tribulation, but awaiting final judgment. And they didn't want to go there just to finish that story out. So Jesus ended up allowing them to enter into a bunch of pigs. He gave them permission to do that. That's enough on that. Any questions or you have anything? Yeah, I feel like you you covered the biggest thing is I just say he declares victory. And whoever is listening is there. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many different interpretations of what it might be. Yes. Okay. Very good. Yeah. The key is Jesus went and made proclamation, which means he preached, he proclaimed, he heralded the message to them that he had victory over death and over Satan. This verse 20, which I read to you already, God was so patient. Noah was building this ark. 120 years he was preaching to all these people, telling them to repent, and none of them did. And only eight people then were brought safely through the water. And now let me talk about this. This was the first water baptism, actually the flood. And if you think about it, God protected these people as he brought judgment upon the whole world, but he protected these people. And he'll protect us as believers. Let me read verse 21, and then I want to explain this baptism. Verse 21, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This means that water baptism does not save you. It takes recognition that you are a sinner and that you need to turn from thinking that you can get right with God on your own and ask God to help you, to change you through your faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a spiritual baptism. You should appeal to God to cleanse your conscience from the burden of guilt and free us from our sin. And that is when you then receive the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual baptism even though there are some denominations that believe water baptism is a requirement before you go to heaven. There's some that think you don't even have a chance to go to heaven unless you've been water baptized, although some of those don't submerge. They just sprinkle and think that is required before you go to heaven. 
I don't know what they're going to do with the verses that talk about the criminal on the cross going to be with Jesus in heaven that day. And in fact, the Catholics have made him a saint, but he didn't get baptized. So I don't know how you square all that up. But in any event, it's my belief that baptism is not a requirement for salvation, although it is commanded to us to do, and we do it out of obedience to show our love. It's a public proclamation of the change that has happened to us on the inside and jesus told us to do it and that's good enough for me he said go do it so go do it and if you haven't i'd love to help you okay and then it's talking about where we get our salvation at the end of 21 is through the resurrection of jesus christ just having a dead person on the cross that died doesn't do us any good if he didn't resurrect It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, which is why he went down to declare victory over Satan when he went down during those three days. After Christ's suffering, he had victory, which is the same for us. When we go through any suffering, we're going to have victory with him. And what Peter is trying to tell us is when we go through difficult times or people persecute us, don't worry about it. Just read the book. We win with Christ. So let me summarize what we've read today. Christ's victory should just give us tremendous encouragement because we're also going to be victorious through our trials. Christ suffered unfairly, yet he did it for us. He took on our penalty. He paid our debt. And when we suffer unfairly, we just need to trust God. He's going to do good through it. You can go look at Romans 8, 28. As believers, he'll make even the worst things. He'll bring about something good through it for us. We also read how a wife's behavior can save her husband. And at the same time, a husband's prayers can be negatively impacted by treating his wife in an improper way. So if you're having troubles with your prayers as a husband... Where is that again? What's First Peter three seven. First Peter three seven. Yes, that's big. Mm. That is big. We're not to let unfair opposition get to us. Never seek revenge. Remember that we represent Christ, and we should give blessings more to others than we do. That was very convicting to me. Our salvation as believers is assured. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection—it was once and for all. It's been done. There's nothing that we can add to it, and it is accomplished. He's even said, it is finished. It's done. Anybody that thinks that you've got to have faith in Christ plus do a bunch of stuff to earn your salvation, that's not the gospel. So you're adding something to it. You're coming up with your own way to get to heaven, and I don't think that's going to work out too good for you because that's not the gospel. And finally, husbands and wives, they should each place the other first. Just place the other one first. Don't get all hung up on this submission thing. If you just place the other person's interest ahead of your own at all times, you will have an incredible marriage. Blessed by God. So let me open it up for any questions or comments that anybody might have. There's a lot in 1 Peter, isn't there? 1 Peter, it's not a long book, but there is a lot, and there's a lot that will convict you. Yeah. Especially in this day. That's a good one. I love the three commands stick out to me, or three pieces. The husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, so your prayers won't be hindered. I just love that. 
And then don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, you may obtain a blessing. So the reality of when someone hurts you, wounds you, bless them. Bless them in some way. And then obviously the last one is 1 Peter 3.15. This is such a packed chapter. I think the reason why this isn't preached more is just the last part is so complicated that people just go, I don't know. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that defense is apologia, which is where we get apologetics. And so there's a fun little word for you. So the study of apologetics, the study of defending your faith is from that. And how often are people asking us to give that account? Right. And usually you're doing it without gentleness and respect. So I think that's always a, yes. <laughs> a challenge. Yeah, if we're not being asked to give a defense... It says always, so it ought to be happening often. And if it's not, you ought to reflect why and ask the Holy Spirit to make you want to be available in order to do that and to live a life that others then want to know what's different about you. Maybe they don't ask because they don't see any difference in the way we're living. They don't see the hope that's in us. That, my friends, is convicting. (laughs) And if there's no one around you to ask you, (laughs) that is also convicting. It's like, I need some more people who don't know Jesus asking me about the hope that I have. Exactly. (laughs) How many non-Christian friends do we have? Right. I think that's so hard. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.